This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. That person you hear sniffling on the end of the line is Lucas Shaw. Lucas, how's your health? Uh, it is it's pretty good. I have uh, some seasonal allergies exacerbated by all the smoke in the air, which is probably convincing all the people around me that I have COVID. But you look healthy to me. I, I can't vouch for it, but I'm, I'm looking at you on the internet. Um, Lucas, as people who listen to this podcast undoubtedly know, covers media for Bloomberg. He's kick-ass. We had him on at the end of last year to talk about 2019. And it's a radically different landscape now. Uh, than it was less than a year ago. So I wanted to get an update on how Lucas sees the world. We want to talk about TV and movies and things you used to be able to do before the pandemic hit that you can't do anymore. Um, We'll do sort of a survey of the world. Um, But I I wanted to start off by talking about uh, a piece that Lucas just wrote. He does a weekly sort of newsletter essay. Screen Time uh, is the name of the newsletter. Is that right? Yep. Recently rechristened. And Lucas took on the the age-old question of what's going on with the NFL and TV ratings. They're down this year. They've been up the last couple years. Before that, they were down. And Lucas, your conclusion is that NFL ratings are down because? Two factors. One is this unprecedented amount of sports we have happening at the same time. You have the NBA playoffs at the same time as the NHL playoffs on top of what's normally in fall with the NFL, college football, and baseball, plus some tennis and golf. And then you also have the election, which was really the source of the the initial decline in 2016 that sent everybody searching for answers. So I get that there's too much sports and that there might legitimately be someone who is interested in watching the Vikings uh, lose to the the Titans on Sunday um, and chose to watch something else instead, right? I get that. I don't understand the election argument. I didn't understand it in 2016. I certainly don't get it now. The premise, I, I just don't understand how because there's an election going on, you may or may not choose to watch football. At best, right, there are a handful of debates that might coincide with an evening football game. But beyond that, what am I missing? Who's, who's not watching football on Sunday because there's a, a presidential debate tonight? So as with all speculation or re- informed reports about TV ratings, I'll preface it by saying I cannot say with 100% certainty that it is the election because we don't really, I'm not sitting in living rooms around the country watching people yeah. choose the news over football. But 
The ratings for cable news have been through the roof this year. CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, all up double digits. I think one of them might even be up triple digits this year. Those ratings are up by more than a million viewers in most of the NFL windows. If you just took a sizable portion of those viewers and shifted them over to the NFL, those declines would look a lot smaller if they'd exist at all. So you're saying um, there is there are people who are watching the Sunday shows, the Sunday news shows. Yes, or the other thing to keep in mind is that the Sunday games are doing better than the primetime games. So mm-hmm. Fox's NFL package, which is the most valuable package, it's the NFC games. You have big cities, you have big teams. They've been pretty good this year. Where you've seen some softness is Thursday night, Sunday night, Monday night, and those are up against the primetime news shows on cable networks. And so I think it's perfectly reasonable to conclude that there's a a decent percentage of the population that is choosing to get their latest fix of Rachel Maddow or, or Fox News or whoever it is on CNN instead of watching football. Lucas, I, I think I'm one of the pundits you're, you're, you're subtweeting in your story. I think mean, subtweeting is the wrong word. Uh, who argue we're, we're looking for alternate uh, explanations. And I'm convinced I'm right, which is less people are watching TV across the board. Of course, that will affect sports. We go through this every time there's a dip in a, uh, a Emmy or Grammy or Oscar awards thing. It's just inevitable that, that the same reasons that people are not watching regular TV means they'll not watch sports. Sports does better than everything else, but still... There's that. Um, but you're also directly addressing this argument that politics uh, is a reason that people are, are avoiding uh, the NFL 2016. That was Kaepernick uh, and kneeling. And now supposedly people are upset that, that Black Lives Matter. Um, but you don't hold any, any faith in that argument. I think that that argument, like your argument about the decline in TV, has some validity in that I think that what's happening in to football ratings is sort of the death by a thousand paper cuts where you have all these little factors. But do I think that it's one of the major factors? No, because social justice and kind of calls for reform have been pretty ever present over the past three, four, five years. There hasn't been, you know, the, the ratings went up for a couple of years in the NFL, as you noted. It's the same thing with the pay TV levels where I'm sure that the fact that fewer people are paying for television has some impact. But that was true in 2019 when the ratings went up. It was true in 2018 when the ratings went up. So it's hard to see that as the the real determining factor. The one thing that's consistent with 2016, which is when this all started, was the election. Yeah. Sure. I mean, look, within an hour of me right, posting that newsletter, I got an email from an All Lives Matter person saying that they stopped watching the NFL. And this happens anytime you write about NFL ratings. Sure. So it's clear that there is a small segment of the population that feels that way. Um, I just don't buy that it's, there's almost no evidence that it's a real determining factor. For random reasons, I follow Chris Jackie, who's a former Green Bay Packers uh, field goal kicker, kicker, uh, on Facebook. And and this fall, he posted something like, I'm excited for football. And and his Facebook feed is flooded with people explaining they weren't going to watch Packers games. And I find that entirely unbelievable. But uh, like any other pundit, I'm going to stick to my, my claim regardless of evidence. But I'm also sure I'm right. The notion that there is too much sports, that is specifically a pandemic uh, result. We went through a spring and summer without really any sports at all. What's your sense of sort of how the leagues and, and the ecosystem around them have responded to the pandemic? And we're looking at a winter and spring next year where things are not normal, where, you know, we just won't have returned to normal under the most optimistic scenarios. How, do, how does that affect sports and TV and that business? 
means that we're not looking at any sense of normalcy for at least a year. It's not just that the NBA was was played in a bubble this summer, and I'm going to be biased towards the NBA just because I like it more, uh, and that the league seemed to handle it the best of any any sports league. But that means that the NBA season and the NHL season, their starts, which would normally be in late October, early November, are going to get pushed back till next year. We don't know when. And so have that late winter that would normally have the NFL, NBA, NHL all at the same time, it's really going to be the NFL on its own. It's going to be kind of like what baseball has in the summer. That just means everybody's got to be more flexible. If you're a a TV executive, I think as a fan, it means you probably have to be paying a little closer attention to to the announcements about when the season starts. In aggregate for the big media companies, it doesn't affect them that much. You know, they're all very happy that all these games are happening right now because it means they can bring advertisers back into the fold who were not advertising on TV over the summer but are desperate to get into major sporting events. Um, And so having sports at any time is a good thing for them. Obviously, they'd rather them not all happen at the same time, I think. But considering that there's not scripted, new scripted programming to put on some of these broadcast networks, it's actually a, a very good thing. Right. It's my sense is without actually seeing the numbers and some of the numbers aren't, you know, aren't in public yet, is that it's maybe a push, right? That, that yes, there was a, a big hole in TV and, and there was a lot of, uh, this was hard for advertisers to get their messages in front of people. Plus they didn't want to advertise in the spring. Now they're, they're coming back. It seems anecdotally, um, with a lot of strength and they're going to take their, their eyeballs where they can get them. Um, and if you're a TV executive, yeah, you'd rather have a normalcy, but you'll take this. Yeah, you are getting maybe fewer eyeballs per event than you would have because they're all competing with one another, but you're getting more eyeballs in aggregate, which is good for the advertising business. Let's move on to movies, which you also wrote about recently. Um, as everyone knows, you, there are no movies. You, uh, there is two movies you could have seen in a theater. No, just one, really, right? Tenet. Um, there's a handful of other movies you've never heard of that you could have seen in a theater. I think... Uh, there was one. You didn't there was a Russell really Crow, weird. One. I think it was unhinged or Russ, something. Yeah, Russell Crowe was daring you to come to the theater, which I thought was a parody, but I think he was serious. So Tenet came out. Um, it sounds like Warner Brothers either wanted wanted to see if it would work or was forced to trying to make it work, but it didn't work. And beyond that, theaters are dark um, essentially, and even if they're open, people aren't going. And again, it seems like we'll be looking at that for winter and spring. At the beginning of the pandemic, I talked to Rich Greenfield, among others, who said this is an exciting time for the industry because they're going to realize that they should get out of the theatrical business, more or less. I'm exaggerating a little bit. But the future is going to be watching these things at home. And your conclusion is? That movie studios should stay in the theatrical business. Rich, obviously, very smart, has been kind of on the, the right side of history with the shift to streaming But there's this absolutist belief that you have to do one or the other, and that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't work economically for these movie studios because the big franchises, they can make more money selling tickets in theaters and then make even more money when they release it at home and make even more money when they license it to TV networks. And even though it's a business that's changing and challenged and people are going to fewer movies every year, for those studios that have the really big franchises that you know people are going to go pay to see, it's still an incredibly lucrative business. You're talking hundreds of millions of dollars in pure profit on some of these titles. Is there enough of that to sustain the movie theater business? Yeah, but it'll shrink. I think it's pretty evident that there are too many movie theaters in the United States. I forget the the total on screens and locations, but most people think it will shrink by hundreds, if not thousands, 
as a result of this. And as horrible as that is for some of these companies and some of the employees, it was probably a long time coming. I mean, this is one of the themes of the pandemic is it's accelerating these trends that were already happening. The only place where people are really building lots of theaters and it seems that they can handle the capacity is China, but one should be a little mistrustful of any official data that comes out of that country. Agreed. And part of the problem you noted here with with the idea that these things are going to come to streaming services, you're going to pay on demand, is pretty much all, all the movies that the studios are most excited about, they just punted. They said, we're going to try bringing them out next year. We're just going to wait. And so the stuff that was available was not the stuff they were most excited about. So you had a Pete Davidson movie from Universal, um, a bunch of other things that, that you can't remember. Um, and we don't know how they did, correct? There's no There's been about those. no official release. I have heard some anecdotal numbers from people that were not great. Um, and I, my assumption is that if the numbers were that good, these companies would be talking about them. Universal went out with Trolls World Tour, which was sort of the first uh, balloon with this and really beat a chest. Now, one of the reasons it may not have subsequently is because it pissed off the theater chains. And then they had to get in this long negotiation to get the rights to condense what's called the theatrical window so that they could do this experiment more going forward. But I, I mean, knowing these companies and how bad this whole all has been for their business... Disney, Universal, these companies would be talking about how successful the experiments were if they were, in fact, successful. Right. Um, and that makes good intuitive sense. Um, and also, again, like, I remember when the Pete Davidson movie came out at the beginning of the pandemic, and I said, oh, I'm looking forward to paying 20 bucks for this. And I have yet to do so, because eventually I realized, oh, shit, there's a ton of stuff I can watch. And at some point, one of the 10 streaming services I've subscribed to is going to have the Pete Davidson movie on, and I'll watch it. Then when it comes out, you did mention the deal that Universal has done to get this earlier window. Can you explain what that is and, and whether we're going to see it replicated in the other studios? Because I think that may be the most interesting thing to come out of this. Yeah, normally with a, a movie from a major studio, they release it in theaters. It has to be there for 60 to 90 days before it can be made available for rent or sale at home. It comes to HBO like nine months after it gets released. That's the, the model. For a decade at least, movie studios have been wanting to shrink that 60 to 90 day window so they could release a movie at home because they spend, you have a, some fancy new movie, so the Pete Davidson movie. Not only does Universal spend $40 million to produce or whatever the number was, I'm just picking that one, they spend another $30 million to market it. They spend all this marketing money for the theatrical release. They can't market it again for that secondary release until later. So what Universal got the rights to do was compress that window to 17 days they did the deal with AMC Theaters, which is the biggest theater chain in the U.S., so that means that when they release Fast and Furious next year, if they wanted to, they could release it in theaters for 17 days. It would stay in theaters after that, but they would have the right to offer it at home two and a half weeks. So for a Fast and Furious movie, right, it, this seems like it's not going to change a lot, right? If you want to see Fast and the Furious at the beginning, you're going to go see it in a movie theater if you didn't care that much to wait for it for the HBO. For the Pete Davidson movies, which again, I can't remember what the Pete Davidson movie is King called. Of Staten it's, it's, Island. There you go. I, I had did somebody to do a Staten Island. And? It was good. It was a Judd Apatow movie, I, you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see it in the theater and I'm happy to see it at home, but I don't want to pay to see it at home is where I come down on those. Um, but it seems like there is an inevitable acceleration that this is going to cause, right? So you're going to have people like me going, oh, I wonder if I should go see that movie or if I should wait now. How long before I can days. see it at home? 17 days. That's a pretty narrow window. 
Um, and it seems like inevitably what that's going to do is for the non-Avenger type blockbusters really diminish the, the, the chances that I'm going to go see it in a movie theater. Obviously, the movie theaters can see this as well. AMC is only doing this, I gather, because they're in such desperate shape um, that they need to have some sort of deal with Universal. And because they will get a cut of the sales at home, which is something that mm-hmm. they're not entitled to. They have no involvement in the actual release, but it was sort of the cost of doing business for Universal. But we haven't seen this from the other big studios, right? Warner's hasn't hasn't struck a deal like this. Disney certainly hasn't struck a deal like this. Disney was the one studio that was always resistant to this and is the big reason this hasn't happened before. And Disney is so powerful in the movie exhibition business that sort of what they said went, they extract the most and the best terms from the different theater chains and their movies account for, you know, 30 to 40 percent of the box office. And to spell it out, right, they are exclusively in the blockbuster business. They made this shift. They no longer make Judd Apatow movies. Correct. Um, They only make Avengers movies and giant animated movies. That's all they do. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we both talked about Fast and Furious, but it remains to be seen whether Universal is going to try this new deal with the movie on that scale it probably depends on the data that they see. You know, how much money does it make in the first two, three, four weeks? They want to release it at home when those sales start to atrophy and they think that they can make more money at home than they might have in theaters. Do we think? Well, we don't. I mean, there's no point in speculating when we're going to see movies come out next next summer. But uh, I guess it it, it, it it rhymes with widely distributed vaccine. So we'll see. The music business uh, is something you cover a lot and very well. We know in general that there's no touring. At the beginning of the pandemic, it seemed like there was a decline in audio, that people weren't listening to music as much. They were um, watching more video, but not listening to audio. Um, what has happened since? Audio listening has rebounded pretty much to, to pre-pandemic levels, in some cases rising. The big difference is you don't have the same volume of new releases. You have a lot of acts where because they can't tour, which is their primary way of making money, are wary of releasing something new. And so you saw you had a, a, a case over the summer, uh, kind of late summer, early fall, where Taylor Swift had the number one album for five or six weeks in a row. And of course, she is Taylor Swift. She's one of the biggest pop stars in the world. But one of the reasons was also because there were not big new releases challenging her for the top of the charts. And so people are consuming as much music as they were in the past. If you are making money from streaming, then you're making the same amount that you were pre-pandemic. Pretty much, except, yeah, except the thing that is sort of crazy to still think about is that most of these music companies relied on physical products, CDs and iTunes sales, which is not physical, and LPs for a not insignificant share of their revenue. And so in most of the cases, the major music companies, the revenue is down. If you're Spotify, if you're Apple Music, this means nothing to you. So if you're if you're Spotify and Apple Music, you don't need to rethink your business. I'm assuming if you're Warner Music Group or Universal Music Group or Sony, you don't need to rethink your business. If you're Live Nation and your entire business is is live concerts and selling tickets to those events, it seems like this is an existential problem because even when we get back to normal, I would assume that people are still going to be, some people will still be reluctant about going out to shows. And it seems like the live business has maybe fundamentally changed. Yes and no. You know, there was, I, I don't know that Live Nation is trying to fundamentally rethink its business. We, If you look at the, the things that have changed or the businesses that have morphed during the, the pandemic, 
you saw a shift from cable and satellite to streaming TV. Something that was already happening accelerates. The same deal with physical kind of CDs to streaming music. There's not an equivalent in live. There was a lot of excitement early on in the pandemic about these live stream concerts. Right. That was mostly a marketing stunt for artists who wanted to stay in touch with fans. There were some acts that used ticketed shows that made decent money. I, I wrote about it. I think that's still going on, but it is not a substitute. If anything, the live music business was the equivalent of streaming. It would continue to boom before the pandemic. And what it seems like most of the promoters, including Live Nation, are doing is just sort of holding on to their seats and hoping that they can survive this thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're, they're, to, to be clear, they don't seem to be re- rethinking their business. They're, they're white knuckling it. I mean, yeah. they don't, it doesn't seem like they have an option, right? I mean, if you're a live nation, you don't have a plan B. You, you're, you own all this, you own all this real estate, you own Ticketmaster, which only works if people are buying tickets to events at that real estate or somewhere else. They don't have another option. Do you feel like they're going to get, I mean, again, this, we're just guessing here, but do you think they come through okay, you know, a couple of years from now? I think Live Nation is fine because of how big it is and because it is supported by John Malone, who's a multi-billionaire, and, uh, and it will have no problem continuing to get money from banks and creditors who recognize that whenever live music is again a thing, that Live Nation will go back to being the quasi-monopoly that it is, and that's a good business to support. The people who are really going to suffer are the independent promoters who own one venue or three venues or don't own the venue but just promote events or just manage acts, those are going to either get completely wiped out or you'll see Live Nation go up and scoop a bunch of them up because it has access to capital that those other companies don't. It can get them for a song and it will just kind of further entrench itself as the leader. That's why there's a big push right now to get uh, Congress to add Uh, funding and support for live music venues and promoters to whatever the next phase of the pandemic relief bill is. It has bipartisan support, but has not been added for reasons that are not so clear to me. But a bailout is basically what they see as their only option. That makes sense. We are advertisers supported. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. I'm back with Lucas Shaw, who's correctly divined that my next question for him was going to be about podcasting. 
because I'm a narcissist and I care about podcasting for obvious reasons, uh, but also because Spotify has gone out and spent, as they said they would, a half billion dollars on, on podcasting, maybe more. Um, they bought The Ringer, they bought The Gimlet, they paid a ton of money to Joe Rogan. So before we get to the controversy around Joe Rogan, which is inevitable and so easy to spot that I was able to type it the first time I wrote about it, do we have any sense of how podcasting is working for Spotify? It's working very well in terms of audience and listenership. Their share of the podcast audience in the U.S. and especially in overseas markets is growing. They have lured a lot of the biggest talent to them. They have sort of established themselves uh, as the company that will be the market leader. It feels a little bit inevitable to me that at least in markets outside of the U.S. where Apple's not already dominant, Spotify will be, and even in the U.S., or Apple has been dominant, that Spotify will either be number two or will replace Apple. What's less clear is if there's a huge business there and if it will transform the business model of Spotify as much as that company would like Wall Street to believe. At the moment, Wall Street has bought in hook, line, and sinker ever since Spotify announced that deal with Joe Rogan. Their stock's been on a tear, uh, but it hasn't. it's going to take a while to show up in terms of revenue and profits. Right. The Spotify argument is we are going to sell more. Uh, we're going to make more money because we're going to sell ads for Joe Rogan and Bill Simmons, everyone else we brought on to our fold. And also we're going to reduce churn. If you were already getting us for music, this this locks you in even more. Um, but it's just too early for us to see if those things are going to play out. Yeah, that's a three to five year play where all of a sudden, you know, Spotify continues to grow its subscriber base at a really good clip in part because it's bringing in people with this. As you know, churn goes down. And at some point, their advertising business goes from, you know, a few hundred million dollars to a few billion dollars. So this week, and the news cycle moves quickly, but it's going on for a little while now. Um, Joe Rogan is causing problems, or people are upset with Joe Rogan. You know, I was just patting myself on the back for, for seeing this problem. But the problem isn't people outside of Spotify complaining. It's people inside Spotify complaining that they don't like Joe Rogan. They don't like particular guests he's had on. They want to remove particular episodes in, involving certain guests. Is this something that sort of Spotify is equipped to deal with? Is this a one-time blip or is this sort of a, a, a constant problem as long as they work with Joe Rogan? It's going to be a I think a constant problem for Spotify as long as it's in the podcasting business. It's not going to be specific to to Joe Rogan because I assume Spotify will make additional deals with people who are like him. I mean, Spotify is trying, has already taken the music part of radio, right, and brought it into the app. It, many other things, it's also CDs, but it's got that. With Joe Rogan and all these other hosts, it's taking the kind of talk and radio drama format and bringing it to its app. Anybody who's listened to any of these talk radio hosts knows that especially the political ones that they spout really controversial. I have other questions for you. I want to take a quick break so we can. And so becoming Spotify is making this transition from being the sort of neutral tech company that doesn't have any say over what people say and do to now supporting and picking horses in this race. It's picked Joe Rogan. It knew when it made that deal that he was going to say stuff that got them in trouble. Whether that means that Daniel Ek and Don Ostroff and that whole team are ready for some of the insurrection that they're going to face from their employees, I don't know. But I don't. I see this as a problem that is going to come up over and over again on both sides where they're going to have hosts who say controversial things and they're going to have to do this dance where they say they're not breaking our rules so we will keep having them. And you'll have employees who are upset, but there's not a lot they can do about it. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because Spotify, like you said, has been a, a platform and, and one of the, the advantages of being a platform generally is when something happens involving someone on your platform, you could say, hey, that's them. It's not us. We're the platform. You know, 
we, we disagree, we feel badly, but we're a platform. Um, a couple years ago, Spotify sort of tiptoed into having more editorial control. They were going to sort of, you know, downrank uh, R. Kelly and other artists. There was a lot of blowback about that. And it seemed pretty clear from the outside that they didn't really understand what they were getting into. And they sort of pulled back from that and said, all right, fine, just pick your own music. Um, but here, like, like we're saying, they have bought Joe Rogan, right? They are licensing Joe Rogan's talent. Um, so they're saying, this is something we support with our own money. Uh, and you can't sort of platform away that, that argument. Yeah. You can't it, platform away that responsibility. Well, and as you know better than I do, platforms also run into problems when they are just hosting or kind of through their algorithm recommending certain inappropriate shows. This is what YouTube and Facebook have gotten in trouble for so many times over the years. Spotify, one of its other acquisitions was this company Anchor, which is sort of a self-serve distribution platform. That means that there are thousands of, of podcasts being uploaded with relatively limited screening. Spotify says its screening is very good, and I'm sure that it's much like YouTube and Facebook screening, very good. But the likelihood that it's going to catch everything that is potentially problematic for them is low. There's no way. My sons and I have made a podcast, a couple of them. Um, there's no way they're, they're checking that stuff up before it goes up. And, and I won't tell you the name of it because it's not very good. Um, and it's not going to harm anyone. And I didn't say anything terrible. But, uh, but there's no way. they're and, and they inevitably will find something abhorrent that's put up there. They'll get taken to task for that. Do you think there's any regret on Spotify's end about going into Joe Rogan? Um, it seems like if, again, they're smart people there, um, they, they would know that there were going to be problems with Joe Rogan's content. It seems like watching them sort of fumble their way through this suggests that they hadn't fully thought it all the way through. Do you think that there's any chance that they reconsider, you know, they've done, they're, done, they're in this deal. Do you think this affects their interest in doing other deals like this in the future? They could be more cautious. I mean, I, like you, find it hard to believe that they didn't know what they were getting into. All you need to do is listen to a few episodes of, of Joe Rogan's show and know where he stands on certain issues and where it can be controversial with employees. Spotify, like a lot of other companies, may not have anticipated a lot of the, the worker movements that we're seeing right now or they're in part inspired by the Trump presidency, in part inspired by the, the killing of, of George Floyd and many others, you're seeing just less tolerance of lack of diversity at the top of companies and more clamor for immediate change. And maybe Spotify didn't anticipate that. And so that could influence who they choose to, to get in business with going forward. But I have to believe that they want to just go after whoever they think is the best and most popular. And as long as the, the person they're backing isn't truly vile and abhorrent, they're okay with it. Yeah. And Joe Rogan's right on that line, right? Yeah. Uh, depending on what he's saying or not saying or who he's having on. Let's talk about streaming video. Subject near and dear to both our hearts. Um, you you, you uh, graciously uh, did a guest spot on... Uh, our Netflix series that came out this summer. We know that Netflix came through the pandemic with flying colors. They sort of answered all the sort of big questions we've had about Netflix. How would they perform in an economic downturn? Great. Um, do they have enough stuff? Yep. How will they perform against competition? Really well. What have we learned about everyone else that has, has finally launched, right? Since we probably talked last year, we now, everyone is now in, who's in the game is in the game, I think, with the exception of CBS Viacom, who's half in the game. Are there any conclusions we can draw about Disney or Apple or even Peacock at this point? 
Disney is pretty clearly the the big challenger to Netflix. All it took for them was a really good marketing campaign in one show to get to 60 million customers. And mm-hmm. they are going to keep rolling out new Marvel and Star Wars. And as long as they have that and the movies for parents of kids, it's hard to see them struggling. I mean, the, the challenge for Disney, which seemed pretty obvious from the get-go, was going to be keeping people. You know, I didn't. Right. Once you've watched The Mandalorian, what else are you going to do? And so far, it seems to be going okay, even though the pandemic got in the way of them releasing new shows. Um, it remains to be seen how, whether Disney will be as successful as Netflix has been abroad in some of those markets where Netflix is now making tons of Indian shows and Spanish shows and French shows. My guess is Disney will, will do a little bit of that, but will lean more heavily on the fact that it's just got these huge franchises that people love all over the world, although not in equal measure. After Disney, it gets a little dicier. Uh, you know, HBO Max had a really rocky start, it would seem. Most of the leadership in charge of rolling it out has since been fired, or not, at least a couple of the big players. Uh, they have a new leader in Jason Kylar, who was, uh, you know, the founding CEO of Hulu, perhaps the, the one company that really went head-to-head with Netflix in its early streaming days for a while. But he now has to try to, you know, operate within a big phone company with a legacy Warner Brothers and HBO infrastructure. The challenge for HBO Max is the same that it seemed like it would be at launch, which is they have some of the best shows in the world. They have very loyal HBO customers. How do you convince anybody who doesn't already pay for HBO to pay for HBO Max? And how do you do that when you're still not distributed on the two most popular set-top box dongle things? Uh, in Amazon Fire and Roku. And I don't know that they've answered that. Uh, NBC and Roku had a fight as well, right? There's a lot of Roku programmer fights. These seem very similar to cable TV fights we've seen in the past and sort of most of us luckily have stopped covering um, because they always get resolved, right? Like inevitably dish and whoever reaches an agreement, they move on. But HBO is still not on Roku. Do you, is there something do you think fundamentally different about that fight, or that's one that gets resolved too? The Peacock, Roku, Amazon fight was primarily about advertising. Uh, Peacock is a free service for some people, or can be a free service, and but NBC wanted to control all the advertising in the app. A big part of the business for for Roku and the Amazon Fire is selling ads on behalf of the apps that it, that they distribute. Um, HBO Max is more about uh, taking a cut of the subscription fee or including it in these different companies' channels, programs. Yep. Um, and I think HBO Max, so it's, it's a slightly different fight, obviously still just about money, but HBO Max is of the opinion that people are loyal enough to it that they will change devices, uh, which I had to do for my mom. So maybe they are correct. And they're just playing the long game, figuring that it will work for them. And it is different than cable TV, right? Because if if you are a Spectrum subscriber in New York or wherever, generally you have one. You, in the old days, you used to have one cable TV provider. Uh, but you really can swap out if you've got a Roku TV and for whatever reason you can't get HBO, you can buy a dongle or you can buy an Apple TV and it's not very expensive and you can swap it out. Right. You can, and Lucas will come do it for you. And price. when I spoke with Jason Killar from Warner Media earlier this summer, he made clear that, you know, he thought that come holiday season, that people who couldn't access HBO who wanted it would switch over. Um, and that that will be, you know, that will change the, the dynamics. 
HBO Max was always the most interesting one to me, sort of back to your question, just because of how strong HBO has been and how much they're the ones that put the most into the programming behind the new service with new shows coming out seemingly every week, kind of like we're used to now from, from Netflix. Peacock, which is a Comcast offering, much like this, what was CBS All Access, has always felt to me a little bit like a half measure. Meaning there's some a lot of stuff you know um, that's been on NBC and things you didn't know. NBC owned a bunch of universal movies. Uh, there's supposed to be a handful of new shows. Those got uh, held up by the pandemic. But they weren't, they weren't bringing a lot of premium stuff off of other platforms, and they weren't throwing nearly as much money as Disney and Netflix were. Yeah, other than stuff. clawing back the rights to The Office for a huge sum of money, they have not invested in the same level of original programming um, and they're taking a decidedly different tack with going with some ads, going with free. I think there was a real belief for them that the Olympics was going to be the primary marketing vehicle for that this year. That obviously didn't happen. So a lot of the push behind Peacock may happen next year. They do offer live sports, which is something that really only CBS offers otherwise, and I think has been an important way to lure new customers. But it just doesn't feel quite as ambitious as HBO Max or Disney+. Plus. Right. I mean, to me, the big takeaway is they, Comcast still wants to be in the traditional pay TV business. I mean, all of them do, right? Disney still wants to be in the traditional pay TV business, but they want to extend the, the life cycle of the pay TV business as long as they can before they sort of bail and completely and move to streaming. Which makes sense when you're one of the biggest pay TV companies in the world. Back to HBO Max and Jason Kyler, I've been idly speculating for some time that, that you know, I still don't understand why why Time Warner, what the company used to be called Time Warner, exists in AT&T, what it does for AT&T. And there was some discussion of synergy. That discussion is even harder to argue now that they've gotten rid of this. Uh, they spent $2 billion on an ad tech thing, which they're trying to sell off. Can you imagine a world where, where AT&T says, yeah, this didn't make sense, actually. Let's let's sell this to someone else. Let's, let's resell this thing we bought. Meaning uh, Time Warner slash Warner Media. I certainly would not rule it out because I, like you, never understood why they matched together. It just felt like AT&T was sort of in search of some new initiatives to excite their shareholders. And they made a bunch of acquisitions and they've already flirted with unwinding a few of them. The only one that they really haven't is, is Time Warner. So that's probably for pride's reason, if anything, the last one to do it. But I, I, I couldn't rule it out. That's why I like having you on, Lucas, because you're smart and you agree with me, and those two things are there may be a coincidence. If I was smarter, I'd find a way to, uh, to say that more pithily. Other than sort of wondering when we'll have a widely distributed vaccine, what that timetable looks like, what, what's your big question mark as you sort of peer into your, your media crystal ball? <clears throat> and besides the election? Yep. Um, I'm really curious how this sort of this movie thing shakes out. I have my theories as to what works and what doesn't and what companies want, but they don't always act the most logically. Like it would seem that the deal Universal made with AMC makes a lot of sense and that these, these studios should experiment sooner rather than later and accept, you know, accept that they might lose a little bit of money, but they can figure out their business. They seem really loath to, to do that. I am really curious like, to see, and keep watching HBO Max. I just think that uh, we sort of know the, the Netflix Disney story, but HBO Max is, is the big question mark going forward, and it's the one that's had the most change over the past few years. The bet and the, the bet on podcasting um, by Spotify. And I, I have come around to the idea that it's probably going to work. 
Uh, I know I'm not supposed to, to say that, but it just feels like at least from an, when you, companies that are able to amass that size of an audience usually find a way to make some money from it. And it's clear that podcasting is growing. So I, I have to believe that they will, but how they will and how the record companies that they work with that really don't want kind of their share of the Spotify pie diluted, what happens to that relationship? Because those companies are all singing kind of kumbaya right now. But the, the day will come if podcasting works where Spotify will come to the record label and say, we're diluting your share from you know, 50 to 40%, and that will be ugly. It'll be ugly, but we're, we're, that one we kind of know, right? I mean, Spotify and the, the music labels are in this codependent, frenemy relationship. They, you know, they will publicly say they're happy with each other. Privately, they're always trying to get an edge over each other, and they can't live without each other. Yeah. Is where I think we end up. I, I forgot one which we didn't even touch on in streaming, uh, which is sort of what is, we didn't talk about either Apple or Amazon really in a big way in entertainment, who are two of the biggest companies it's a, in the it's world. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing, right? Um, we took it for granted for years that if Apple ever got into streaming, it'd be a huge deal. Um, although I think our perspective has changed in the last few years, right? After seeing Apple try other content businesses and not succeed um, overwhelmingly. Music they have sort of succeeded in. Um, it's no longer given that they would succeed. And for everyone, including Netflix, assumed Amazon would be a force to be reckoned with in streaming. And they seem to be still very sort of muddled politely. Yeah, Amazon has too many different initiatives going on at the same time, and none of it matters for the bigger business, and so it's fine. But it's, you know, the third place in music streaming. Now that Disney's come along, I really feel like it's third place in video streaming. The Apple strategy is just weird to everybody because they're so... In music, it makes sense, but they haven't figured out what the next evolution of that product is. In TV, they have this very small selection of original shows, and they everybody keeps waiting for them to build it out to give more people a reason to pay for TV+, and they don't want to, and it may end up working because... They now have a handful of shows that people really like, and they're, uh, they had a lot of success over the summer with this Tom Hanks movie, Greyhound, and everything I hear sounds like they're going to keep spending a fortune on original movies and be another one of these companies that's eroding the theatrical business a little bit. So I wouldn't be surprised to see them with some huge movie releases in the next couple of years. The Tom Hanks one was a pickup, right? Correct. They, they were supposed to go in theaters. It was and a they Sony movie we'll, that they... Like a lot of, yeah. a lot of, a lot of places, right. And Netflix has done that with Enola Gay. There's a, there's a bunch of those. You've teed yourself up so we can talk about Ted Lasso, to fit, which is good. But I, I, I want to just, uh, uh, I want to publicly stand, is that the correct verb, for Central Park, which to me is the best case scenario of an Apple TV show where they spent a ton of money and hired everyone from Hamilton, everyone from Frozen, and everyone from Bob's Burgers and made the best case scenario of a, of a, of a funny but not cynical uh, cartoon musical that you can watch with your family. But I have a Ted Lasso question for you. Okay. Well, I have two Ted Lasso questions. One, if it's Apple, why does it look so cheap? It's about an American football coach who goes to uh, coach English Premier League soccer. Um, it looks like it is made in a soundstage. Um, no one looks like they actually play soccer in it. And it has a very cheap and chintzy look, even though I'm sure they spent a ton of money on it. And the second question is, are we supposed to think that Ted Lasso is a smart person or a dumb person? And I know that in the end, I'm sure we're supposed to think that he's secretly smart, but he appears to also be a full-fledged moron. So what am I missing? I assume that it looks like it does because it was, I think it was produced by Warner Brothers. 
Um, so Apple was not the kind of the main studio on it. Apple spends a like, gobs of money on everything, but maybe this one, you know, was was promised at a relatively cheap price in part because it's you know it's a sitcom and that yeah. type of comedy doesn't travel historically that well sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't but it, they maybe figured it was just for the US and so you want to keep the budget down i think ted lasso is a pretty smart guy who is good at keeping things very bottled up and i wouldn't be surprised if at some you got a little taste of um sort of the family his family dynamic in yeah. one of the recent episodes. And I wouldn't be surprised assuming that there is a next season, if there's some moment at which he explodes, you sort of had a taste of it when he had the, um, like the, the panic attack outside of the karaoke bar. Oh, I haven't got to that episode yet. Sorry. I will say that that is a, it's just a weird tonal show. I, my, my kids or one of my kids likes to watch it, but it's not really a kid's show. Like if you if your kids are like, if you're a little on the fence about your kids watching the office, or something like that, or friends, like, this has oral sex references it. I had to explain what, what a wanker was and, and what that hand motion meant. Um, it's edgy for Apple TV, is what I would say. Can I, uh, can I ask you a, a Netflix question, since you just yeah. did this excellent Netflix podcast? So the big news of the summer... Thank you, Lucas. <laughs> yes. Um, ...was Reed Hastings, longtime CEO, co-founder, making Ted Sarandos his longtime deputy-turned-partner to co-CEO. These sorts of arrangements pretty much never work. The company is adamant that it will work because this is pretty much how it's operated for a long time. Do you, this is going to be a multi-part question, so I apologize in advance, but do you, one, do you think it is going to work? Do you think that the plan is for Ted to be the long-term CEO and Reed to sort of be a chairman kind of still overseeing his creation, but not as involved day to day. And he just sort of wanted to take a half step. Like, why are we seeing this arrangement when it seems like they could have done something a little bit different uh, and, and had the same result? This is the, how you always answer a question. Good question, Lucas. Um, I don't know. It, it, you'd kept, you could have kept status quo, which is Reed flitting in and out of the office. Um, I, I found out in the course of reporting this, he spent six months in Italy one year, just, wanted to work out of Italy and did. There was never any announcement about it. He worked remotely. It was fine. He is not the programmer. He, he won't tell you he is. He's got his shows he likes, but he's not pushing forward. That's all Ted Sarandos' stuff. And it's now a programming business. So you should make Ted Sarandos the CEO. If you, by the way, think he's the right person to, to run the company. And there are people in and outside of Netflix and who know the company who are not in the Ted Sarandos camp and wanted Greg Peters to run that company. And he is more of the sort of Reed Hastings sort of product tech guy. And I thought it was interesting that when they bumped up Ted, they also bumped up Greg Peters. So to me, that seems like a break glass in case of emergency. If, if for whatever reason, Ted is not the guy that you actually want running the company, you've got, you've still got someone around who could do that. Um, but I don't know, you know, uh, Reed Hastings is a very idiosyncratic person, makes him a ton of fun to talk to and to write about and to make podcasts about. Part of me just thinks that he did it this way just to prove that it could be done this way and that he will be the guy who had a successful co-CEO tenure on top of everything else he's done. Um, I don't, it may or may not be a coincidence that they announced this structure at the same time they're, they're rolling out a book explaining how you should manage your company like Netflix. And this could be the 10th chapter, how to, how to, how to make your co-CEO didn't work. How did that vamping non-answer work for you? I thought it was good. Okay, good. We will leave it there. Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg, you're excellent. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That was super fun. 
Thanks again to Jelani and Joel who produce and edit the show. Thanks again to our sponsors who let us bring this show to you for free. A bunch of more cool stuff is coming your way for free in the near future. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing. Talk to you soon.